The Old Testament reading is from 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my mother and my father, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the ninth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. O God, forsake me not. Lord, I am yours forever. O oh, keep me strong in faith, that I may leave you never. Grant me a blessed end, 
when my good fight is fought. Help me in life and death. O God, forsake me not. Amen. Well, it has been quite a week. It has been a roller coaster for pessimism and optimism. Toward the beginning of the week, there was uh, protesting a drag queen story hour at a local library. This was the second time in a month. But the week ended with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And so with a, week, with a week like that, I ask you, is the future bright or no? If you had to answer on Tuesday, you might have a different answer than you do on Friday. That question could be asked of different people down throughout history. As people looked around themselves in 1941, what would their answer be? Is it bright or not bright? What about if you asked it in 1500, pre-Reformation? What's the future look like for them? What if you ask it in the 400s AD, when Rome is sacked and in steep decline? And since they were real people dealing, dealing with real situations, you could also ask the people that we find in the scriptures today. Elijah, for instance, in our Old Testament reading, has settled on pessimism. Now, just at chapter 4, just chapter 18, right before that, he had had this showdown with the priests of Baal, where God had shown himself to be the true God, had demonstrated it in front of everyone. Yet here, only a chapter later, Elijah runs away, complaining to God. And Elijah maintains that he has been a failure, that despite his preaching, the country still rebelled against God's commandments. Despite his preaching, the people hated true worship. They persecuted those who promoted it. Elijah figures that he is the only faithful one left in Israel, and now they were seeking his life. And so Elijah prays that he would die. He, he wants God to take him away from all of it. He had failed. Now, in the Gospel reading, it says that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem and you get, the you get the feeling that the disciples are optimistic. They, they are keen on this by now. They wanted this to happen. Last week we heard about Jesus taking on a legion of demons. He sends them away without much visible effort at all. And then earlier on in chapter 9, Jesus had fed over 5,000 people. Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus had transfigured himself. He had shown with divine glory before Peter and James and John. Now they knew who he was. And so for people who had heard prophecies about the coming Christ their whole lives, who had been waiting for his great day to arrive, for them, of all people, for them to have front seats at miracles, for them to be in the inner circle, the inner circle of the Christ. And to hear him say that now is the time to go to the capital. Now we are going to Jerusalem. They are psyched. Optimistic. The whole way. So much so that when a Samaritan village doesn't want to let this ragtag band of Jews heading to Jerusalem, when the Samaritans don't want to let them settle there, but instead tell them, hey, why don't you keep walking toward Jerusalem? Then James and John 
want to do a little Elijah imitation themselves. They want to call down fire from heaven, burn up that town and all the unbelievers in it. Now, I don't know whether you want to classify that specifically as either optimistic or pessimistic, but it is a feeling that I think is more common these days, maybe even in our own circles. And it's this idea that the future could be bright if we could just get rid of all of the people on the opposing side. If, for say, if, for instance, they were struck with fire and it left only us true believers behind, then, finally then, we could get on with living life the way that things were meant to be lived. Now, just to be clear and to remind you, that kind of thing has been attempted before. There were people in charge willing to sacrifice millions on a way to a brighter future. We do not remember those people kindly. And as a side note, do you think that you would be a lot better if you were in charge and you got to make those decisions with that kind of power? And whatever your answer, let us look at the gospel reading again. James and John suggest this idea. They suggest the idea of burning the entire town down. And you see that Jesus responds by rebuking them. Jesus came not to destroy lives, but to save them. That, that is what he's here for. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. The first verse of our gospel reading was, when the time had come for Jesus to be taken up. The point of the entire gospel is that Jesus didn't come to kill sinners, but that he came to be killed on behalf of sinners, including, apparently, including Samaritans. And including, apparently, whatever other sinners you want to name. Now, that may not fit with how you see things working. James and John clearly felt otherwise as well. But, again, Jesus, the Lord, rebuked them. He is heading to Jerusalem, telling them the whole while that when he gets there, he is going to be crucified, and he will rise again three days later. So if that kind of action, if wiping away all of the opponents is off the table, then are you a pessimist or an optimist on the future? And I want to state clearly, Jesus here is not supporting sin or unbelief. There are biblical ways of dealing with sin. And this is not the modern idea of tolerance. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. Jesus talks elsewhere about what will ultimately happen for people who insist on rejecting him. This is, on the other hand, God's continued mercy and patience towards sinners, giving them time to repent. In both of our readings today, Old Testament, New Testament, we see that in regard to the future, God outlined, not our plan, he outlines his plan. And Elijah complained that by his estimation, he was the only faithful one left in Israel. God says, actually, there are 7,000 others, which, I mean, when you hear that, it sounds great. Elijah was off by 7,000 times. But then if you do the math, if there's a million plus people in the country, what is 7,000 percentage-wise? Not that high. And in our gospel reading, Jesus isn't raining down fire on the Samaritans. 
And furthermore, for those with questions about the future, or even the present, this is what Jesus recommends, himself. If it comes to following him, or following our own plans, he recommends following him. If it comes between a life of luxury or being on the run, Jesus recommends open-air camping with him. If it comes to obeying your parents or him, Jesus says he is the one to follow. If it comes to putting our earthly stuff in order or following Jesus, Jesus says, do not look back. Follow him. Now, what does that mean for the future? More than once, Jesus says that in this world, there will be tribulations for believers of all sorts. And that is kind of pessimistic. But in the end, following him means not seeing death. It means being in his kingdom forever. But that end will come when God wants it. Not according to our schedules, not according to our methods. So if you have Jesus, you have all you need and more. If you do not have Jesus, it doesn't matter what else you have. It's not going to make up for that loss. Just a few weeks ago, we had an Old Testament reading about people who thought that they could build their way to heaven. That plan did not end well. Instead, it ended with them speaking all sorts of different languages so that they could not work together to that end. And then on Pentecost, we heard about the apostles declaring the mighty works of God in all sorts of different languages. In today's gospel reading, Jesus sends out messengers. That is, he sends out angels to prepare people for him. And that message goes out. That message is the saving words of God. Let us hear those words and let us be content with those words. God will worry about the rest. Amen.